Welcome to Everybody Has Shit. I'm Kim Reed. This podcast is an open invitation to put your wellness on another level. You no longer have to keep your autoimmune disease or whatever it is that's holding you back a secret. Secrets hurt us. Everybody has shit. So let's all get better together. Let's all try to overcome the challenges we are facing and live our best life. Some would call it a crisis, one that has fallen through the cracks or doesn't get the proper attention or diagnosis or all of the above. We're talking mental health. Either way, it seems every family is touched by it. This episode is special. A close friend who John and I both worked with reached out and wanted to share his story. It's rare. Plus, we have a doctor who treats the mentally ill, and we get his take and advice. Let's get to it. So on today's podcast, we're going to be discussing mental health, and I've got a friend with me, Jerry Donadio, and Dr. Pabadi, who is a psychiatrist. But I wanted to read some statistics just to start the show, just to kind of put mental health into a perspective. One in five adults live with mental health. The WHO says about 301 million are living with anxiety disorders. 50% of mental health begins at age 14, 75% by the age of 24. The average onset is in the mid twenties. It's the second leading cause of death. Children ages 10 to 14 and four times as many men than women commit suicide. I mean, you just go on and on and it just gets bleak to listen to these stats. And it's always been a topic of discussion because you see so many gun, you see so many shootings, and it's directly linked to mental health. As a country, what aren't we doing? What should we be doing as a whole to address some of these issues? Well, um, it's a great question. And Thank you for inviting me. I'm not sure that I or really any single person can say what we should be doing because I think that that's a really complicated question, but I think it's probably easier to answer what we shouldn't be doing. There's no denying that there's a huge stigma associated with mental illness in a way that there isn't with almost every other kind of illness that would be treated by in a healthcare setting, you know, whether it's diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues, cancer, there isn't nearly as much shame associated with admitting you have those conditions and then going out and finding treatment in the same way that there would be with depression or anxiety, PTSD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. I mean, one of the things that I think probably anyone who's spent time in a hospital will tell you is, you know, on a medical floor, on a surgical floor, there's plenty of visitors coming in every day to see the people that are hospitalized there. You go to a psychiatric unit. It's empty. empty. There's, there's no one coming. There's no one standing in solidarity, very rarely. Um, depending on what hospital you're at, sometimes the people that you're taking care of don't have anyone to even visit them. It's a shame, though, that, that, that the stigma is that because it's, in essence, a chronic illness like many of us treat. You know, I have a chronic illness. 
Um, and sometimes it, I wasn't ashamed of it. I didn't know what was happening to me and I kind of went underground with it, but sometimes you don't know what's happening to you. Is that the same as mental illness that if, if it's your norm, your normal way of thinking or handling certain situations, if that's all, you know, is that your norm? It certainly can be. For many people, it is. They just assume, well, this is how I feel. And it's probably how everybody feels. I'm just not good at dealing with it, or I'm too weak, or whatever other self-defeating thought that we come up with to keep ourselves. I mean, you're correct. Most mental illness starts late teens, early 20s, sometimes even 30s. It's a time of our lives when most of us are trying to find out who we are and then you know is it okay to be who we are and will other people be okay with who i am and there's this fear that what if part of me is unacceptable Mm -hmm. can i change that part of me is it even within my ability to change that part of me and if i fail to change that part of me will i be shunned will i be ostracized to have to deal with all of that is hard enough as it is yeah you know it's, it's tough growing up. It's, it's tough finding your place in the world. But to do that while struggling with the symptoms of mental illness, whether it's depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, whatever it is, it makes it 10 times harder. Mm-hmm. And we don't have good words that we are taught at a young age to talk about how we feel in our souls mm-hmm. and in our minds. You know, we, we teach children, you know, if you have an owie, or boo-boo, or, you know, whatever these terms, that even four-year-olds and three-year-olds, they know, I have a boo-boo, I have an ouchie. They can communicate that pain, they can communicate that distress. There's grown adults who are unable to describe what it feels like to be in the throes of a panic attack, despite having had them for decades. Yeah. And to not even be able to put into the words the suffering that you're going through, it's so hard to even know where to begin that conversation because when you have that conversation, it's 30 years too late. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of what we're discussing here to start, the major missing link in when we talk about cancer, when we talk about some of these other illnesses, when we talk about auto, autoimmune disease, those create sympathy. Those somehow they hit people and the sympathy bone kicks in. When a person has a psychiatric issue, that's not a sympathy thing. That's a fear thing. That's a the when the, the the cheapest thing we do in our society is we say someone's crazy. It's lazy and it's dismissive. It's almost creating derogatory terms for people to make them subhuman. So therefore, if a person's crazy, whatever happens to them happens to them and you don't feel as bad. But if someone dies of cancer, you literally go, Oh, that's so bad. But when someone's like, oh, this crazy person did something, people go, oh, you know, you just got to be safe out there because there's different reactions to these things. I think one of the, one of the things that, what, that you're talking about, sensitivity needs to be given in the same way as it is someone with cancer, as it is someone with autoimmune, as it is someone with one of these terminal illnesses that people have come to accept in our society that just happens to people. But they don't feel that way about mental illness because everybody thinks that, oh, something's wrong with that person that is different than another type of illness. You're absolutely right. I, you know, 
we could track back in history, like when was the first stigma assigned to a person with mental illness? And I don't know, we go back hundreds, thousands of years, but it's so ingrained in us. And, and John, you talked about that fear. There's plenty of evidence to sh show that the people who struggle with mental illness, even serious mental illness, are no more violent than anybody else. It's their circumstances that can make violence an acceptable or in some cases unavoidable part of their life. Um, you know, I, I've gone back and forth personally, like, you know, wh where does the stigma come from? You know, how do I conceptualize it? And there was a time when I was like, and sometimes I still feel this way, but mental illness, when a person is struggling with say schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it's not just their illness, you know, it affects their loved ones, it affects mm -hmm. their friends and their neighbors. You know, you have, you know, a lot of times bipolar disorder and schizophrenia manifests in college years. If your roommate is struggling with hallucinations and mania, it, it sounds callous, but that is an inconvenience on your life. Yeah. I, it, yeah. It is. But in a way that if your roommate has diabetes, it doesn't necessarily intrude in your consciousness, consciousness in a way. Now, that, that's part of pro possibly the explanation, but I don't think any of us would say that that's an excuse that, a lot, that should be used to justify the persistence of that stigma. Right. It's hard. It's, it's hard to show empathy and sympathy for people when you don't understand what they're going through. Yeah. I think another thing, because I grew up poor. I grew up, like... Again, the, the level of poor that people see on TV and go, oh, I would never go to that neighborhood. And there were roughly large families because poor people have a lot of sex. I don't know why, but that's just, you get bored. <laughs> Almost every person who I knew had a family member that stayed in the back room. You don't go in there. Because the lack of education combined with the poor, being poor, that's a collision course for people not being able to get help, not being able to go yeah. to the doctor. And so what do you do with that person? You just put them in a the bag and you go, leave that person alone. Yeah. And so now, not only is the, 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 the insensitivity to whatever this person is suffering from, it's also them just being shunned. So now it's isolation on top of that. And I think where I'm from, that's where you get a lot of the violent acts from those from people who suffer from things like that because it's isolation on top of everything because you don't, the family's embarrassed by this person, and now this, no one knows how to handle it, and no one's around it enough because you are taught to stay away from it. And so there's so many different factors, and there's so many different economic layers and education layers to this type of issue, and I think that it will always be something that our society struggles with because it goes back to your original question. How do we fix it? We don't. We don't. We have to do better at it, though. Yeah, I mean, yes. The short answer is we do have to be better at it, but it's not clear to me that there's an obvious obvious path forward. But I have to say, though, so Jerry, myself, and John, we all worked in the same radio station. Sales, promotions, producer, on air, and then I did a morning show. And when Jerry came to me and shared his episode and it was a year-long episode right of, and more more of depression <clears throat> um it was shocking because it goes against 
my perception of him. You know, I see him, I mean, would see him every day, happy, this guy, this image I have of you, but then to find out the, the darkness that was in your head. But I have to say though, the fact that you shared that with me, I think is a really big deal. Even though you're on the other side of it and you're feeling good now and you've gotten treatment, I just think it's a big deal. I don't know, men don't, do they not share this? I, I just, I don't feel like they do. And so I think it's a, it's admirable that you wanted to come forth with your story on, on your big struggle. Yeah, it's, uh, so a couple things. You know, when I got better, for the lack of a better term, what I, the question in my head was constantly, why? Why did this happen? You know, how did this happen? Um, because I, you know, based on just the, the statistics that we just talked about, I don't fit in any of those. You know, I, yeah. I was in my late 50s. Um, you know, I grew up in a middle, middle class neighborhood in the Midwest. Um, had a very successful, relatively successful career <laughs> until... You know, it imploded the, until radio, for all of us. <laughs> commercial radio started to implode. But, um, but, and actually, there's, there's some of that. Some of what I went through has a little bit to do with the job. So uh, anyhow, I don't know how or why... Quite frankly, um, I've talked to my doctor about it, and you know, and some of the explanations are that there there are several factors that led up to it over many years. But do you remember like a moment? Did you just wake up one day, or was it a slow grind to this epiphany that I'm depressed? It was it was gradual. Um, what what I learned was uh, for in my particular case. It started with um, it started with triggers related to financial, and um, you know I, I I was the sole provider, sole breadwinner for my family for many many years. Three two kids, mm-hmm. so I'm supporting three. <clears throat> and then um, one of the first things that happened was I I decided to go out on my own and start my own business, and I was doing consulting. And as fate would have it, it was the year before the the Great Recession of 08. Yeah. And so I was out there, you know, completely exposed. And um, there were some some, you know, circumstances that changed my entire business. So that was the first kind of a trigger. Like uh, I I remember being anxious. Yeah. So fast forward, um, there were several other examples of where my financial um, environment had had been rocked like whoa and we'll get into the details but that that's what I recognized as a trigger to first anxiety mm-hmm. and and then um, I got through some of the anxiety and that showed up for me in the form of um, just not a, a, like a constant knot in my stomach I couldn't eat I would lose weight you know, I'd lose 20 pounds in a matter of about a month or two when I was dealing with that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so then I, w- I would, re- I recovered from that. Um, and then in addition to the financial stressors, I had, I lost my best friend of 45 years, uh, over, you know, suddenly to a heart attack. And we were, we were very close. And then shortly thereafter, the, my, one of my cousins who I grew up across the street from, and was there when he came home from the hospital. Like three months after I last saw him, he went to bed, never woke up. So I had all these very close 
close people in my life that passed away. Yeah. And again, I don't know if it was any one of those things or if it was a combination of the financial stressors, stressors combined with the personal loss. And, and then I went through a tremendous amount of change in a very short period of time career-wise. Give you an example. I started at a radio station in September. I'm sorry, in August. By September, they announced they were going to be sold. By February, they were sold. Had a new owner. By April, the manager that I that hired me quit. And by uh, July, the morning show that I had most of my income tied to went across the street. And then that station was uh, sold yet again. So it was just boom, boom, boom. So but it all linked to money. Uh, the change, but then all that. Yeah. It, yeah. It, a lot of it was uncertainty as well, because um, even though the money was, was resolved, it was still the uncertainty. Like now, how are we going to ever replace, you know, this morning show and all the revenue that was personally attached, that I had personally attached to that show. So it was very, you know, very devastating. And then after I, um, after, after they did sell, of the entire radio station, they only took four people from my department, and I happened to be one of them. Well, the sale of that radio station closed on March 13th, 2020, which is the same day that COVID shut down yeah. businesses. So I never moved into the new building, to the new job. They said, go home. Here's your computer stuff. You're going to be remote. Two weeks later, he let, they had to let two of the four of us go, and I was one of them. And that was kind of like the straw. So was this whole, was the majority of the episode year and a half or however long it was, was that during the pandemic building up to that? And then it just kind of paralyzed it started, you. It, it started intermittently about a year before the pandemic. And, and then it was just progressively getting worse to where I could barely function at work. And it was just, I, I couldn't describe it. So um, a couple of things that I wanted to share was, you know, I had been to counseling before and I had tried medications before. And um, so that's the first thing I did is I, I contacted um, a mental health professional and, yeah. and I got, I was prescribed some medication, but um, it, I got worse before I got better. And I think a lot of people um, really struggle with that because you're already feeling hopeless. And then when you, when you get on some medication, and I can't explain how it made me feel, but it was just horrendous. So it, it got a lot worse before it got better. But fortunately, I had the support to where I could, you know, it would be like try it for three weeks or, or a month or whatever, maybe six weeks. Did you stick with the same person, the same professional, the same psychiatrist or psychologist, or were you jumping around trying to find a match? Well, that's a great question. Going back to the very first time that, that I had any sort of, um, this was back in like 2016 when I first experienced anxiety, <clears throat> I had a heck of a time with it. Um, it the, the, the system was, it, it might be better now. I think it might be better now, but for example, I, I called, I was out of town. I called to get some, to get a prescription. My, my general practitioner prescribed me some medicine or some medication for anxiety and said, look, I'm not a psychiatrist. You need to go see a psychiatrist to make sure you have the proper dosage. <clears throat> so I, I finally found one and it was about a three week wait before I could go see this doctor. Yeah. Well, the Friday before I was supposed to see this doctor, they called and said, um, 
Monday is is a, a holiday, and so the doctor's not going to be in. I said, okay, well, how about Tuesday? And they said, oh, I'm sorry, he's not he's not taking patients for another three or four weeks. So I had been on this questionable dosage, which I was having some weird side effects that I couldn't even address with a psychiatrist for almost two months. And and that was a struggle, just that part of it. So finally, we, as soon as I saw him, he looked at it in five minutes, he knew the prescription was too low. Right. The dosage rather. So he upped it and then I, you know, I, I felt a lot better. So uh, what was the original question? Um, well, I was asking if you jumped around from oh, doctor uh, to doctor. So uh, yes and no. I stayed with the same uh, organization, but there were different psychiatrists and therapists that moved within the organization yeah. that for various reasons, they, they, you know, I had to find another one. They were very helpful in, in transitioning me, but I didn't have to go look. It was just, so yes, I had different ones. Um, but, and it takes, you know, it takes a commitment. It takes a lot of work. You really have to advocate for yourself as well. I do. You were going through this because what you're, what you're describing that you went through pre COVID and then during COVID and people, the jobs closing and things turning over, a lot of people went through that and everybody kind of dealt with it in a different way. What would you say was one of the things that even though it was a struggle for you, helped you? that you were able to do yourself or something that you were able to find that made it a little bit easier for you, even though it was still a struggle? Nothing made it easy. Uh, It was brutal. It it was the worst thing that I had been through in my life because what happened in my case was I was, I was a completely different person. So there were outward signs. So in your environment with your wife and your children they could see it was a different dad and husband. Yes. And it even, even at work, um, people knew that something wasn't right. You know, they could just tell I wasn't myself. Did they, did, <clears throat> did they approach you and say, what can, can I help you? Do you, I mean, was there anything that anybody said yeah. or did to you that helped? Not really. No. I mean, because they don't know what to say or do, nor did I. I just knew I was feeling off. I knew that each day was a struggle just to get to work. Yeah. You know, and, and this was long before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But I want to ask Dr. Pabati, is when you see somebody whose demeanor has completely changed and it's not just for a week, it's for a long period of time. I mean, as just an outsider, is there something that we can do to help in any way? It's a great question. I mean, first of all, Jerry, I'm- you know, I'm glad that you're, you've had a positive trajectory in your case. Yeah, so am I. It's, it's a hard fight for everybody. <clears throat> it is a fight every day. Okay, as family members, friends, loved ones, if someone's struggling with mental health issues, or, or if they just seem off, I mean, when, when someone or something doesn't fit with how we think it's supposed to be, for a lot of us, that's like, a, uh, I'm not sure I want to engage in that. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay, if there, okay, if I find out something is wrong, what's my responsibility for dealing mm-hmm. with it? But isn't that part of being a caring person? I mean, don't you want, isn't that maybe where we need to step in and be um, more proactive for people? Or is that too much of a burden? Yes. It is a burden for yeah. a lot of people. It goes back to what we spoke to before. People helping you, like as a man, as a man, uh, par, par, probably a lot of it is is male pride. But mm-hmm. at the same token, like 
you just want, in my case, I just wanted to be left alone. Like I, I'm going to get through this. I don't know what's going on, but I don't want you to worry, you know, but of course everyone did. And it got to a point where, um, well, when I lost my job, I just, I decided, you know what? I, I, I'm not in a position to even try to find another one. I, I was just that, that far down. I just said, I'm not going to even try. I, I, I struggle to look at like LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, it was just the things that were this big, they appeared as mountains and it was just so overwhelming. And so I, I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to take some money out of my retirement and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hope that I get better soon because I had a lot riding on it. I've got three people that I'm, you know, that I'm supporting while my wife was working at the time, but nonetheless, we needed my income too. So for me to be in a position to where I can't even work, I can't earn money. Like, are you kidding me? It was surreal. And and it just compound. I mean, it just kept like one layer after another. And then, so then there's guilt because you're not carrying the load, you know, you're not doing your part. And, and then some of the, so most- it just builds inside of you and it just gets worse yes. and worse and worse. What was the physical, I mean, what physically you said you lost weight when you would have that thing, but then as it progressed, what were your other physical symptoms? Um, I don't know if, if I was physically exhausted or mentally exhausted or both, but I was fatigued. Like it, everything was so draining. You know, the, my wife and my daughter would be like, just go, go for a walk. You know, exercise is good. My wife was doing all this research. You need vitamin D, get some sun, try this, you know, over the counter thing and try this homeopathic thing. And, and, you know, everyone's going really, they're trying so hard to figure out how to fix you. Yeah. And they can't. And because I I couldn't. So um, it, it, it's just so frustrating because, and, and you're right, it, it just builds. Like, you know, you add one layer on top of the other and, and then there's the fear. And, and the fear was, am I going to get out of this? And that's the same fear that my family had. Like, we've never seen him like this. I could barely get off the couch. You know, I'd wake up, I'd be okay for a little while. And then all I wanted to do is go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And like when I was in, when I was in sales management, I really enjoyed mentoring and, and coaching, Yeah, you know, you're an affable, fun loving guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there (laughs) realizing that some of the people that I mentored and I coached, they're coming back to me trying to motivate me. I'm like, wow, this isn't, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's a real identity. It changes your identity at at the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, Here's another example. I would get calls from family and friends. I couldn't return the calls. I'm like, what? I just couldn't bring myself to pick up the phone and return the calls. So they start calling my family. Yeah. My good buddy from college. He, I wasn't returning his call. He calls my daughter. Okay, so did that bother you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It did. Because, yeah, because now I'm burdening them. I'm adding to the burden. So you look at it as a burden. Yeah, it is. because. Is it? Well... There, why else would my, I mean, it's, it's a burden for my family to have to field calls that are meant for me because I'm not. But that's your, your perception of a burden, right? Is it really a burden? Isn't it? What How common is what he's describing? Common. Hmm. 
look, we, we started talking about like, is it too much to ask for society to, to ask like, hey, you seem off. You know, John and I made the statement like, kind of. But the question is, why is it why is it so much to ask? Yeah. Okay. In in your background, where mm-hmm. where people are poor, being poor is exhausting. Yeah. It's physically exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's spiritually exhausting. It's exhausting with every on every level that you can decide. It's never ending. It, it's exhausting all the way. And I'm not going to say that I have any experience with that, but that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. That would be accurate. <laughs> If that's your baseline, I don't think most people in that environment have a whole lot left over for like extra compassion and extra empathy, especially when it's potentially the kind of empathy that isn't going to pay a dividend. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's difficult to talk about this in, in, in these kinds of terms because it sounds callous. But say I got a buddy of mine who, not depressed, not anxious, but just... Going through a rough patch. Yeah. Marriage, kids, job, whatever. Going through a rough patch. Okay. You say, look, you go into a rough patch. Let's go out. Let's grab a dinner. Let's have a, have a drink. And just, let's just talk. Okay. He's going to unload. He's probably going to feel a little bit better because he hasn't had anyone to talk to. And he's going to probably be able to say, thank you. I feel better. Even if I am not, even if my problems aren't resolved, I feel better. That is an empathy that I have extended that pays a dividend to me. So I get something back for that effort expenditure. But that's not what happens when you're trying to do that for a person with depression or anxiety. Okay. When Jerry was going through the depths of his depressive episode with the anxiety on top of it, he didn't need to go out for dinner with a friend and a drink and have a couple of slaps on the back and reminisce about, you know, college years. Like, that wasn't helpful. So you're saying... that it's more about me. So if I'm extending myself to you and I want to try to help you, then I'm getting that feeling back that I'm trying to help you, but it's not helping you. That's part of it. It, it, It's a small piece of a very large picture. Then we talked about, you know, the uncertainty about what does it mean to talk to a person or interact with a person who has mental illness if you don't have the understanding of, look, the mentally ill are not violent. Like when Jerry was depressed, it wasn't like he was going to slug anyone who tried to help him. Like that's not the perception. But if you don't have any experience in working, in talking or engaging in any way with someone struggling with mental illness, forget, you know, forget the serious, like, really debilitating like schizophrenias and bipolar disorders, yeah. even like a severe depressive episode. It's hard to know how to talk to this person, especially, I, I would argue that it might even be harder to talk to a person that you have a prior relationship to because now what you're seeing doesn't match what you used to see, what you've took, taken for granted for mm-hmm. 15 years, 20 years. All of a sudden, it's, it's this person in your friend's body, but it's not your friend. Okay. It's some stranger. But the extreme part of depression would be suicide. And if that is the end result for people who are depressed to do nothing, is that, so are you saying that that is a trajectory that's going to happen? And a friend saying, can I help you? What can I do for you? Isn't going to change that path? Well, um, it's worth 
recognizing that over the last 20 years, the suicide rate has not improved. And depending on how you look at the data, you can actually maybe say that it's worsened. Part of that might be because, you know, I think in a lot of places we used to call suicide something else on the death certificate. Yeah. And now we don't do that. Yeah. So it may look like the suicide rate has been artificially inflated the last few. I, I don't know. But th- really the point I'm trying to make is I can't, as a healthcare professional, as a mental health professional, point to a single evidence that says if you do this you will guarantee that the suicide rate in a population goes down yeah i don't think like now there may be things that could be done outside of medicine outside of healthcare. but i mean no yeah. one's really going to listen to a doctor or a therapist when it comes to socioeconomic policy like right <laughs> and, and maybe they shouldn't but yeah <laughs> I, I don't really think i have a whole lot to offer there right but I will reiterate this point. It costs something to extend yourself to anybody, whatever it is. And if it's like a regular pick-me-up, you know, you get that back. Right. But the other part of it is, okay, you talked about suicide. Say I'm talking to someone who, and, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but say, say I'm talking to somebody who, who's struggling with depression, and I try. Mm-hmm. And I find out a month later or two months later that they've killed themselves. Mm. I think that on some level, for some people, having no involvement is less problematic on, on some level than having an involvement that failed. I don't just, have any data. Just sit with that for a minute. That's, that's, that's a rough statement. I believe that it's probably accurate. That's the reality. Yeah. It's part of it. Yeah. It's, it's not the whole picture. And yeah. none of the, these things are a whole picture because... To be honest, it's too I don't complicated. Think we have yeah. anybody has a whole picture of forget mental illness at large? If you just want to call it depression, you know, Jerry, you said like, where did this come from? Why is this happening to me? I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for why depression happened to anybody on the planet who had depression. Mm-hmm. We have answers for some people who have cancer mm-hmm. or diabetes or heart disease or whatever. It's tangible. Apart more tangible. The, the illness is physical, but the cause in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases can be identified. It cannot be identified in mental illness. Genetics isn't all of it. Mm-hmm. It's part of it. But even if you just look at genetics, there's no depression gene. There's mm-hmm. no anxiety gene. There's no central area like there are in some other conditions. Right. That's really annoying. That's tricky. <laughs> it's a tricky field you've chosen. Yes. I mean, so I, did you have something? I had a question. Okay. For Dr. Pabati. So, you know, there have been a lot of high profile suicides in mo- most recently. Yes. Um, I have Adam Rich from <laughs> Eight is Enough, 54. And, and Ellen's producer, uh, yeah. Ellen's, uh, the guy from the, you know, the dancer. The DJ. The DJ. Twitch. Twi- yeah. Mm. You know, I, in look in seeing the social media coverage of it, there they showed him dancing with his family. I, I think it was within a day of, of two days the, before two days. And when you look at the video, there's absolutely zero no sign. zero sign. And so, I, I, I want you to, to to answer this question. Then I'll give you my perspective, having gone through um, a situation that was. You know, led me to have suicidal thoughts. That's how that's how bad I was feeling. But 
so my, here's my thing. My question is this. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading some of these blogs and, and there are people saying he was so selfish and uh, you know, it's like, no, it, you know, from what I went through, it's not about being selfish, but can you just enlighten us about how can somebody who looks so happy, so engaged and, and not despondent and not, they don't look or, or act like there's anything wrong. And, and then you know, 48 hours later, they're gone. How do you, what's your take on, on that? And Robin Williams, I mean, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. His is a little bit different. But. Yeah, he had Louis body dementia. Yeah, and he, he had a few other yeah. issues going on over the course of his life. Okay, I, I, I'm not familiar with uh, Ellen's DJ, but I, I remember the news report. But to answer your question about how was he able to present himself so well, just like that. It was a persona. And I think for a lot of public figures, that's where we as a society struggle because their wealth, their role in society is to project a version of themselves that we want to see. Nobody, I mean, for for me, the memory I have of Robin Williams has always been Mrs. Doubtfire. So... <laughs> but you know, no one bought tickets to that to see the version of Robin Williams that was struggling with depression and substance use issues. Like that's not what that's not why people lined yeah. up to see that movie. You know, that's not why he was chosen to voice the the voice of Disney in Aladdin. Uh, sorry, the genie in Aladdin. Like mm-hmm. his the point of his existence as determined by our society was to entertain us. And Showing, showcasing your depression is not all that entertaining. So, yeah, you know, Twitch was on TV or whatever dancing because that, that's what he was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so he did that. See, so, because I disagree with you to a certain extent. Because I've never suffered from depression. So any opinion I have of it is totally from the outside arena yeah. looking in. So... It's not a criticism. It's just something that when he killed himself, you said something interesting where people said that, oh, he was selfish. I was one of those people. I'm not afraid to admit that. I was one of those people who thought that was a very selfish thing to do. And the position in which he was in, and it's funny that you were speaking that, I think a person who can come out of that like you did has such an opportunity to create influence and awareness by the position that they have, but he chose to be dancing and showing this other side of him that he's due, that he has to. He has to show people, my life is great. Yes, whatever happened to Ellen has nothing to do with me. I'm having a great time with my family. We're dancing, I'm doing good. But that 10 second, 15 second TikTok he posted, after that he probably went and sat on the couch and didn't want to get back up, but he had to do the TikTok because I have to keep showing front face that I am doing well. And as a, again, an outsider looking in, I see a person of that level of influence with the inability to look at his wife and look at his children and look at the people who follow him on TikTok and not be able to turn that pain or turn that confusion or turn that hurt or that, that, that depression into... You realize that there's just no way you can get someone to understand the true depth of your point of view 
if they don't have at least a couple of those scars. Mm-hmm. So in that same way we talk about, is it, is it wrong to view a suicide as selfish? Maybe the only people who have a right to an opinion are people who have stood on that cliff edge. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. for people who have not stood on that cliff edge... What, are you going to tell them not to have feelings? I mean, then we're back to the very beginning yeah. of this conversation. Yeah. Like, look, I, I know I've said this a lot. And I'm going to say it again. I, I don't know. I, and, and, I, and I personally distrust anybody who thinks that they do know because I think it's... Look, if you just look at the suicide rate, we, whatever me and my colleagues have done the last 30 years hasn't been enough, hasn't budged. And you could argue that maybe we've made it worse. I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just changes how the, it, it changes just how the statistics are reported. But it's not like all the new drugs that we've discovered in thirty years and all the all, all the everything has had this seismic shift in the suicide rate. Now, okay, that's just the people who are dying. What about the people who tried, lived, and never tried again? It's hard to collect that data, you know? I mean, what happens in, like, I'm in San Diego. I barely have access to community data in San Diego. Forget having data for LA mm-hmm. or Chicago or New York or Boston or Seattle or Austin or Miami. Like, I don't know what's happening there. I don't know. Are they having better outcomes as a, as a region? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, maybe there's a system in Miami that's fantastic at recognizing when someone is on the verge of making their first suicide attempt, intervening, and you don't see it. Or maybe there's a system in New York that captures people who survived their first suicide attempt. And so in that community, there's no, there's a very low rate of second attempts or third mm-hmm. attempts or something. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I've got a couple thoughts on, on that. So, John, the reason that I reacted to people that thought that he was selfish is because I was sharing with Kim a few, a couple days ago that, so we've, most people have had too much to drink at some point in time. Right. And so your brain is not functioning properly. So what happens the next day? It wears off. You might feel horrible hangover. You may not remember what you did. The things you did are so out of character of what you would normally do. People don't even recognize you, you know, because of where your brain was as it was saturated with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So the best analogy that I can come up with is, while people that are dealing with depression and have all these other, you know, issues, at least my experience was your brain is, is working almost as if it's intoxicated, like things are, everything's distorted. And so would, you know, I, I, the only thing I could say is, um, you know, by the grace of God, I, I had some, some of those thoughts, but by the grace of God, I didn't act on them, but it was, it was, it, it was a quick ending of, of a prolonged pain. Mm-hmm. And and that's what a lot of people don't realize. Like, how long was this guy in pain? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and especially people of in high profile careers where people, millions of people, are watching them every every day. You know, the last thing they want to do is is put that out there. Because Show any th- sign of weakness. Th- that's their entire yeah. 
not only identity, but literally their income. So anyhow, um, that that's why I was, I was reacting, you know, when I saw that people were saying he was selfish. Yeah. I mean, technically that is a very selfish act, but this, the other side of it is how much pain was he in or any of us, how much pain is someone in to, to do that, mm-hmm. you know, and people forget about that side of it. And, and yeah, it is selfish because the people left behind are devastated. But the person that did that, in my experience, at least the way I went through it, you're not in the right state of mind. You know, you wouldn't do that. Just like you wouldn't jump over a fence that's unlocked if you're if you're not drunk, you know. And I, I know personally know someone that did that middle of the day. They 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 drank and they jumped over a fence that was open. And so was the front door. Like, what? The next day they wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But with depression, it doesn't wear off like alcohol. So there's different ways to treat depression. I know pills are what we're all familiar with. But there was something here that jumped out at me. It's called TMS. Can you explain what that is? It stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And has there been success with this? Absolutely. So TMS is one of the more revolutionary treatments in mental health Um, as you said meds are the most commonly known along with therapy and there are millions of people who are alive today because they got therapy from the right therapist at the right time there are millions of people who are alive today because they got the right med from the right psychiatrist or healthcare professional at the right time and i think one day in the not too distant future, I, we will all be able to say that about TMS. I think it has, it's a truly novel intervention in, in some sense, like, you know, it's not a pill, it's not talk therapy. Um, there are some similarities in terms of TMS and kind of how it relates to one of the oldest interventions for depression, ECT or shock therapy. And what TMS is doing is using a magnets arranged in a specific way to stimulate and activate certain parts of the brain. And the effect of that stimulation is associated with a reduction in the intensity of the depressive episode. And it does seem to make some kind of change on the physical brain itself to keep depression at bay even when you're done. Mm -hmm. For many people, Medications are life-saving, but they are permanent. Mm. Yeah. Taking that medication forever, yes. which is fine. Right. Like, yeah, some meds have very unpleasant, awful side effects. And some, you take them and apart from the fact that you take them every day, you don't really notice them. Or if you do, the side effects are so negligible compared to the gain that it's there's no, it. it's so worth it. Mm-hmm. And there's so many patients I have who, who have serious side effects, but they're like, I am never stopping this med, even if you think it's okay, mm-hmm. because I remember what it was like before this med, and I'm not walking down that path again. I don't care. Is there a certain patient that would be better for this, or is for TMS, or is it okay for everybody? It is okay for everybody. In, in, in our country, obviously, health insurance matters. TMS is, 
Very expensive. TMS is not cheap. You know, there's a there's a chair, there's a helmet, there's a technician that is essential for the whole process. Mm-hmm. Very few people who struggle with depression or are not good candidates for TMS. Very, very rarely. Yeah. But the now, I mean, especially over the last four or five years, insurance companies are really on board with approving TMS, which is wonderful. It's it's convenient in many ways. It's not a permanent addition to a person's life. And for many people, it is becoming more and more affordable. And the results speak for themselves. I mean, the cynical interpretation is this. If it didn't work, insurance companies wouldn't pay for it. And they wouldn't pay for it at greater and greater rates. Right. Yeah. And I just hate that insurance companies are involved in our freaking health care. We can't avoid it, but I hate it that they are able to make those kind of calls. I really do. Okay, that sidetrack. Last question, last comment for either of you. If there is something that you would like to share about the ordeal that you've gone through and to try to help someone, and from a medical side of it, if there's any warning signs that you would want to throw out there or give to someone, that could be in a condition or on their way to doing something of that nature. Yeah. So the reason that I even decided to, to be here was hoping that at least one person would benefit from what I went through Mm -hmm. because at least it wasn't in vain. So the advice that I would give is, is there, there are several things. One, don't give up. You know, it's, what what seems what seems uh, as permanent hopelessness it eventually will get better the the problem is it seems eternal you know at the time and days feel like years so hang in there you know seek help and 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 get an advocate in other words get your family involved too um one of the valuable things that I, I got out of this was my psychiatrist actually invited my wife on on a call because it was during COVID and, and we were doing video conferencing. And he learned a lot from her. Yeah. And it was a brilliant move on his part to say, hey, you know, bring your wife on here. And she was able to tell him things that I couldn't because I didn't either see it or whatever. And so it was helpful for the doctor to, to hear about that and to, to understand what the, you know, what my spouse was seeing in me. So anyhow, you know, try to get help, try to get other people to help you. If, if you're not in a position to get that help, it's out there and it's a lot of work and it can be frustrating at times, but it's worth it because, you know, the alternatives are not very good you you know you you either going to stay in that funk forever or you know something worse but anyhow hang in there look for the help um the other thing that, that that you have to understand too that I went through is it is the it was the loneliest path that I'd ever been on in my life because you can't you can't nobody can relate to what you're going through right so it's it's isolation and and it's brutal, but you know, just. Do- but you made it to you made it through this, which is amazing. And I seriously, we said it at the beginning. Love the fact that you approached me to do this. This was your idea. 
this whole thing was your idea. And I think that that well, speaks volumes for where you've come and the fact that you want to help people because what else is there? Well, I, I also saw Dave Pelle on, on here. Yeah. And that, that kind of triggered me to say, hey, you know, I'm going to raise my hand as well. So anyhow, and if, especially for men, it's, it's extremely difficult to admit that you, you need help. It, mm-hmm. It's very hard. And, you know, you, you have to swallow a lot of pride to raise your hand and say, hey, I can't fix this. Right. You know, I need help because we're conditioned to be the fixers. The fixers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that, that, that's pretty much, um, I think that's all that I wanted to say is, you know. Is there a number, is there a local number? That's what I was looking up. I know there's a national number recently. Yeah. Um, is so, it this is, I should know this. I think it's, it's fairly new. I think it seven, four, one, seven, four, one. No, no, no. There's the another three digit hotline. It's, okay. it's like, like a nine, one, one or a four, one, one, but it's okay. six, one, one. It's this, this is not a good sign. But I can't remember <laughs> that. Well, fortunately we haven't used it. It needed <laughs> yeah, to. I, I haven't had to direct anyone towards it yet, which is a relief, but there are a lot of resources. 988. Thank you, John. Good job, John. There, there are a lot of resources out there. And I mean, look, I, I've said a lot tonight that, you know, we need to do more. What we've done is not enough. And that's true. But that in no way means we haven't made. And whatever we as a society, we as a healthcare system, we as individuals can do to get even one person, like Jerry said, mm-hmm. in front of a professional, it does pay dividends. However uncomfortable however anxiety provoking it can be for us to take a step that we don't know if it'll work, but it still needs to be done. So how can, give us your, uh, are you on Instagram? Are you on Facebook? How can people get in touch with you? Give us the best way. So I don't really have much of a social media presence. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, John. But my, the company I work for, Sokia Health, is a fantastic healthcare organization. We are based, we are founded here in San Diego. Okay. We are, we are founded by clinicians. We are run by clinicians and we're driven by clinicians who are passionate about not just caring for individuals, but creating an environment that allows all clinicians to function at their best. You talked about, you know, the health insurance industry and how that plays a role. One of our missions within Tokyo Health is to create an environment where all that other stuff, everything other than the clinician and the patient, it's kind of left away. You know, we really try to create a place where when people come to see patients, that's what they do is they see patients and they don't, they, we try not to have them worry about anything else. Yeah. So you can find Sokia Health. On, Spell it. It's S-O-K-Y-A. Okay. Sokia Health. Okay. You can find us, SokiaHealth.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as well, and I think Twitter as well. Um, what I will say about us, almost everyone that works for Sokia Health had the choice to work somewhere else or has worked somewhere else. But we've all chosen to keep working here are openly speaking about it, then it's not as much of a, it doesn't have that stigma or as much of a stigma, you know, because like you said at the, at the outset, if somebody has a broken arm, they're not in the back room. Right. Correct. You know, so I think a lot of it has to do with just having these conversations, um, having the the conversations with loved ones. and, And if you see somebody that's struggling, you know, 
reach out to them and and understand that in a lot of cases they may not know how to get better so whatever you're offering they may not be receptive to it but just hang in there both sides if you're suffering from it hang in there and, and it will get better and and if you're trying to help somebody just stay consistent and, and just be there for them and even if they're not receptive Great advice. Thank you both so much. This has been a very informative and enlightening conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.